Well, becoming like Christ is, is one of the marks of being a fully devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in a series, uh, this is the, the fourth of, uh, in this part of the, the series on our mission, becoming like Christ. Our fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ means becoming like him in character, and that's our, our focus today. That is our mission, and that mission uh, of full, become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, of course, is found in, in Matthew 28. Our, it's our paraphrase of really what Jesus said to his disciples, make more disciples, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. That's the mission. So we ask, we've been asking the question in this series, what does that look like? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? What is the distinguishing marks of a disciple of Jesus? And we talked in previous weeks about uh, a distinguishing mark of a disciple is one who identifies with Christ in his church, identifying with Christ in baptism, saying, I belong to him, and it's that public display of, of identifying with him in his death and his resurrection. And of course, as we belong to the church, it's identifying with him in his body. That second mark was the fact that we as disciples of Jesus desire to assemble to be together with, with the church family for worship and fellowship. Because it is in the gathering together that we can stir each other up to love and good works. So we need that. We need to be together. Last week, we dealt with stewardship. A, a disciple of Jesus is one who stewards, stewards the uh, abilities and um, resources and ultimately, in the context of time, stewarding all of that for the sake of serving God and serving others. And today, we're, we're finally speaking about becoming like Christ in character. So that's what we're going to do today. Before I read the Bible text that we're focusing on, I want to lead us in a prayer. So would you join me as we pray? I realize, Father, that nothing is going to happen here apart from the work of your Spirit. I can speak words and they'll just fall to the ground unless those words are anchored in your truth. So I need you to direct my words and direct my mind and all the study that I have done in the past week will be for nothing unless Holy Spirit you show up so I'm pleading with you that you would I'm praying that that you would plant your living and active word on our hearts and bring the transformation that only you can accomplish in us Lord we are all in this room we are all who are listening, watching on live stream. We are all under your word. Your truth is the authority over all of us. And so we come humbly before you asking that you would take that and change us, make us more like you. And we ask this for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, the Bible passage that I'm focusing on this morning that I want to be unpacking for us 
is from Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, we'll find a few verses from verses 12 through 14. Romans chapter 13, 12 through 14. So, God is speaking. Listen to his word. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is God's word. A few years ago, uh, there was a, a TV show on, on TLC. You might have remembered this. It was um, contestants would be nominated by a, a friend or a spouse because they needed some help in the wardrobe department. Uh, so what they would do, these contestants, after they had been chosen, what they would do is they would, they would choose their, their best outfits for different settings, like work or going on a date, etc. And of course, what they chose was quite inappropriate. Uh, It was usually unsuitable to their body type or just simply out of date. And that show, if you recall, it was called What Not to Wear. Uh, And it's true, really, to dress appropriately, you have to take off what is not appropriate and put on what is. Take off what is inappropriate and put on what is. And really, the same is true for a disciple of Jesus in the area of character, character, the the stuff inside, the ways that we behave in the world, character. When we come to Christ in faith, we come with those old habits and, and old ways of thinking and doing things that simply do not honor Christ. That's our, our default position. So our, our Bible text that I read for us is really about what to wear and what not to wear. Not in the realm of clothing, of course, but in the realm of character. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give you three headings, three, really, three things to do in order to reflect the character of Christ in our own lives. And here they are. Three phrases. Put off, put on, and plan. Do you love that Baptist alliteration? Put off, put on, and plan. Three Ps, okay? Put off, put on, and plan. So first, let, let's get to this. First, put off. Put off. Now, continuing in this whole clothing thing, um, years ago, as a, as a student uh, in the summer, when I, late in high school and into my early college years, uh, I worked at the Ford plant uh, on the assembly line building cars. And most of those summers were spent operating a, a spot welder. Um, now, these are jobs that are probably handled by robots now, but so this is way back, you know, 30... 35, 37, 38 years ago. That was a while ago. Wow. To say it out loud. <laughs> um, it was a really dirty job. So 10 hours spent on a shift, I would probably do 20 to 25,000 
individual spots, spot welds around the, the door frame of the car. And what would happen is that that as an over 500 volt spot welder, it would shoot up sparks and smoke and it would just, at the end of the shift, I would smell like metal and I'd be all grimy and dusty. Now what they did, the company, they provided me with coveralls, a fresh pair that I could wear every single day. And uh, I wore those. But at the end of the shift, I, I had to take that off. If I was going to be with my friends or come home and be with my family, I had to take off those coveralls. I had to set that aside because it was covered in dirt. I needed to put it off. See, there's no way I could be fit to be with family or friends with the dirt and stench of the factory on me. Everybody understood it. Well, in the same way, when we come to Christ... We need to take off all of those things that were part of our rebellion. The dirt and the stench of a life lived apart from fellowship with God. So in our text, the Apostle Paul here says, let us cast off. Let us put away. The imagery is is getting it off, that clothing that was on you, getting rid of it. Let us cast off, put away, get rid of works of darkness. And, And then he gives some examples of what those are. Because these are things that these Romans were probably part of. And it's shocking to our eyes and ears. Orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Now, as I said last week, uh, these kinds of activities were probably typical for a Roman citizen because it was all built into their pagan worship practices. They did these things. Now, just as an aside, isn't it like the devil to take things that the Bible calls sin and turn them into satanic sacrifice. But you know that list? That list might simply describe the fun activities at most secular colleges, right? Or it might describe what happens at the office Christmas party when it gets out of control. Now, I don't need to give you examples of what the scripture describes as dissipation, where it says, do not be drunk, wherein it leads to excess, but be filled with the Spirit. But dissipation is simply the loss of control when you choose intoxication over the Holy Spirit's control in your life. And that is apparently what was happening. That is the state of these people that that Paul is writing to. Don't. You've got to put off that stuff. That is your former life. That's immorality. Now, of course, these are kinds of things, as we read the list, that probably most socially responsible people don't get involved in, right? But look at what Paul adds to the list. Not in quarreling and jealousy. (laughs) Okay, now, now, now he touches a nerve, doesn't he? That might hit home to some of us. It certainly does to me. Maybe, maybe, like me, you're tempted with being argumentative or enjoying verbal jousting. Maybe you are quick to share an opinion and engage others in conversation where you need to be right. Now, the point with this list isn't to look at it and find ways to feel good about ourselves because our particular sin isn't listed. No, that's, that's not the point. The broad categories here, if we were to look at it that way, are really sins, first of all, of fleshly indulgences. Whatever your flesh craves in an uncontrolled sense, whether it's sexual immorality or 
food or, or intoxicants or anything else that just feeds the body without regard to the righteous expectations of God for our lives. Then there's the other category, failing to show love to a brother or sister or, or even an enemy, quarreling, jealousy. And to that could be added a whole host of other things, being selfish, being arrogant or rude, being self-aggrandizing. Everybody is caught up in something that fits in one of these lists, aren't we? So how do we, how do we cast off this stuff, which is the old man? What does it mean that Paul is saying, put off this stuff? Here's an essential word an essential component of faith that we need to grasp, and it's this, repentance. Repentance. You take off what is sinful. You take off what is evil through repentance. Repentance is that expression before God to say, you hate this thing? I do too. And I don't want to do that anymore. Now, repentance isn't making a guarantee to God, I will never sin again. But it's certainly the heart desire. It's the heart desire to say, I wish, oh Lord, help me not to sin again. It's that humble attitude before the Lord that acknowledges that we've fallen short, that we've missed the mark of his standard of righteousness and desires for what he desires in our lives. You know, when King David, the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart, but when King David, his heart was for the Lord. But we know the story, don't we? He, he gave in to the cravings of his own flesh. In a day when he was being lazy and wandering around the rooftop of his home, his army's out fighting the battles, he sets his eyes on a woman who's not his wife. And he abused his kingly authority and he took her as his own and then murdered her husband. Her husband who happened to be one of his best generals on the front line. Now after he was confronted by that sin, by Nathan the prophet, he repented. And in Psalm 51, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture that serves for us as a model of how we repent our own sin. Because if we want the character of Christ formed in us, we can't just pretend that we're not a mess. We can't pretend that we have not failed God. We can't pretend that we've got it all together before him. No, we have to acknowledge humbly that we have fallen short. So here's the words of Psalm 51 that I use almost daily for whatever I'm confronted with by the word of God. And I encourage you to do the same. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See the longing of his heart to be purged of the evil that remains. That was a big evil. But listen, adultery and murder will separate you from God the same way that pride and self-righteousness will. It doesn't matter the sin. Whatever we have held on to, if we have not understood that that needed to be confessed and repented of before God, then we're not understanding our own sin nature and the very need that we have for salvation in Jesus. No, we have to come with that humble understanding that we need to be washed from our sin. And he says in verse 10 of Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do you see what the psalmist is not doing is is promising anything. I'm not counseling you not to commit before the Lord. I'm not going to do that or this thing that you know to be sinful. But that's not the strength of our rescue. It's not your words. He's asking for divine help. You, God, do something in me. In the same way that you spoke the universe into existence by your word, create in me the clean heart. You, God, need to renew the right spirit in me. This isn't my working. This is your working in me. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus, you have repented of your sin, and you continue to repent of your sin. And you do this because your own hatred for your own sin continues to grow even as you walk with Christ as a disciple. And so we we must come to God confessing. We must do this regularly. And so why can we confess with confidence? Oft quoted, perhaps you have memorized this yourself, if, in John's first letter, he says this. Well, before he says this, he says, if we claim before God that we have no sin, we're, we, we call God a liar. So none of us are in the position to do that. But then he says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess, brothers and sisters, we confess because he is faithful. And he's faithful to do what? He is faithful to cleanse. But not only that, he is just. You see, God doesn't just forgive by saying, oh, don't worry about it. I won't. Just, just forget it. No, God doesn't, God doesn't s- pretend that our sin is of no account. No. Any sin is an affront to God's holy character. Any sin makes us worthy of being eternally separated from him in judgment any sin. But God gives us a provision. Then if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And that justice is not because he said, "Uh, don't worry about it. That justice in our confession is, is us being reminded that Jesus at the cross paid the full measure of that. The consequence, I should say, of the full responsibility for our sin ultimately was poured out on Jesus himself at the cross. And when he said it is finished, he said, I have paid 
I've done it. That's the justice of God. He poured out his wrath on his son instead of us who believe. So let me ask you, disciple of Jesus, or maybe you're not a disciple yet, have you repented of your sin? Have you come before God in humble acknowledgement of the depth of your own depravity before God? Have you confessed that and asked for his forgiveness? That is the path, the first thing that we need to do in the path to Christ-like character. Put off what is unholy and unrighteous. Second, we must put on. Put on. Now, to put on something is to recognize that it is not naturally part of you, right? So, if it's cold outside, you need a jacket. So it's, you know, it's going to be 99 today. Is that was the forecast was? You know, Tuesday when we leave for work in the morning, it's going to be like 49 or 50. It's, like, it's crazy. And it's going to be raining. So we'll be wise at that point to put on a jacket. I know there's a very simple illustration. It's something external to us. It's something that we must decide to do. It's something we must say, I got to trust that thing to keep me warm and dry. In the same way, we need to put our trust in something outside of ourselves. The Apostle Paul is saying, put on Christ. Verse 11, he says, the night is far gone. Just to explain this, the night is far gone. So, so as we look at night and day, really those serve as metaphors for evil and good, right? So as I've already said, Paul is writing to those who have emerged from the night, and they've considered what they were. They've cast off. They've repented of their evil deeds. And now he says, what do you do? Put on, this is the positive, put on the armor of light. That armor, that's verse 11, this armor is for protection from the dark. And this is all on the path to growing in Christ-like character. Now, think with me in this moment. Is the Apostle Paul simply saying, put on goodness as a protection against evil? Is this how we develop into mature disciples of Jesus? Is this how we show the character of Christ? Now that you're a believer in Jesus, all you need to do is try harder. You need to be more disciplined. So if you come to church and listen to the preacher telling you that you need to do better, that's going to solve the problem. Go and be better. Well, <laughs> I know some of you, because I've felt this way, some of you felt like a failure this last week. Maybe some sin you confessed to the Lord a thousand times, and then you did it again. That hurtful word, the bitter thought, the careless deed. You thought you were making progress, but you feel defeated now. Is, is really the solution only being told that you've got to do better? Is this the gospel message? Just try harder. Well, you know, that sounds like what the Pharisees did, right? Pharisees said, there's the law. Try harder. You know what? You're not really doing that very well. Let me give you another set of rules to give you a little bit of help. So do this, try harder. But I tell you what, here's another set of things. This is going to help you. 
That doesn't sound like good news to me. Now, if he says, put on, put on the armor of light, we have to understand how to do that. And, and to think about this light, we have to think in other parts of scripture. So we, I would turn you back to, to the gospel of John in, the, in John's great prologue. He there describes Jesus as the word of God who was with God and who was God. And then he says this in verse four of John chapter one, four and five. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, Jesus is the light who comes and shines in the darkness and the darkness has no power over him. So putting on the armor of light is putting on Jesus himself. As he says in verse 13, as if to fully explain it, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, clothe yourself. Okay, so how do you do that and how is it protection from darkness? Now, putting on Christ certainly is not less, not less than arming yourself with his goodness by imitating him. It's not less than that, but it does not start there. If you think all I need to do is just do my best to imitate Jesus, what would Jesus do? And I'll solve the problem. That's not the starting point. You see, the thing about the, the, good, the good news about Jesus, the gospel, the thing about it is a message to be believed. It's a message to be believed. That's what the Apostle Paul, in the beginning of Romans, as he begins to unpack the glorious explanation of the gospel message itself, he says this, and I quote this often, but Romans 1, 16 and 17, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the good news about Jesus. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, this message of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by trying harder. The righteous shall live by following the rules of the best they can. No. The righteous shall live by faith. There's so much confusion about the gospel in many churches. They talk about living the gospel, doing good, working justice, as if that's somehow the gospel. But the gospel is a message to be believed. And to believe it, you must trust it. And so to believe in Jesus is to, first of all, believe who he is. So what does the Bible say about him? What is the, the content of the gospel message? Well, Jesus is the son of God. He is divine. He preexisted creation. He is uncreated himself, and he is God. Jesus assumed a human body. Jesus lived that life without sin. Jesus proved his message with many signs and wonders. Jesus was falsely accused by those who were jealous of him. He was handed over to Roman authorities, and he was crucified. There at the cross, Jesus took the eternal consequence of sin of all who would put their faith in him, all who would believe in him. Jesus was buried in a tomb. Jesus was raised to life on the third day. Jesus showed himself to his disciples and and upwards of 500 others over a period of 40 days. 
Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand, and he is now seated there where he intercedes on our behalf. And one day Jesus will return to this world, and all creation will know that he is Lord. That's the gospel. And the way you respond to the gospel is saying, yes, that's true. You're in charge. Thank you for saving me. And and if you believe this about Jesus, it means that you believe everything that he has said. Everything in this book, Jesus owns. And he affirms it. And not one word Jesus said would pass away. Not, Not one stroke, not one little punctuation mark. It's all true. And so we must believe what Jesus says, what the word of God says about what is evil and what is righteous. We must believe what what the Bible says about what it means to serve him by loving him and others. And when we do that, when we believe that, then we have the opportunity to flow out of our lives fruit, the very outworking of the spirit who indwells us because we've trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord. So that what will flow from us as a result of that faith will be, as Paul says in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Things that Paul says, there's no law against any of that stuff. That's what the Spirit does. That is the fruit of genuine trust in Jesus. Putting on Jesus, putting on the armor of light is is trusting him and trusting that everything he says is true. So the way that we grow in character is by being reminded that the power for godly character to be formed in us is not in our own strength, but in Jesus himself. The power, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that salvation has a, has a mark in, in the past. It has a point in the past. We're forgiven from our sin and counted righteous in God's sight. That's our justification And that salvation has a a working in the present. Our sanctification, our being made like Christ, that gospel has the power for that too. And that gospel will bring us all the way home and fit us for glorification when Christ returns. Well, third, we need to plan. Plan. The path to Christ-like character is to put off, to put on, and then to plan. What's involved in the plan? Well, you've heard it said that if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Now, my dad said that to me all the time. Maybe you've said that to your kids. Maybe you heard it from your dad or your mom. Well, of course, the point of this little maxim is that, that passivity is likely the precondition to accomplishing nothing at all. <laughs> if you're just simply passive, not really paying attention, It is the precondition to accomplishing nothing at all. If you don't decide to set the alarm, you may not get to work or church on time. That's how things work. 
If you don't regularly save, you'll not have what you need in the event of your car breaking down. Well, the same, the same is so true of character. You have to decide what is righteous. You have to decide for those things. And then you have to decide against what is unrighteous. Verse 13, Paul says, walk properly as in the daytime. Well, what's proper? I think we've got some, some understanding, but verse 14, he tells us, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision. What, he, what the word there, it, it means to have no forethought for. In other words, don't plan for the deeds of the flesh. Now, now you might be thinking, well, well of course not. Well, don't go there too fast, because here's how this works. In the realm of sin, and especially, especially as he's illustrating sexual immorality, no one just falls in to an adulterous affair, do they? No one accidentally ends up sleeping with the boyfriend or girlfriend. That doesn't happen by accident. I've often said this. Before you end up in the bed of someone who is not your wife or husband, you've already given yourself hundreds of other sinful permissions that no one but God sees, and it began in your mind. You turned it over. You imagined. You thought, maybe, probably not, but maybe. Oh, I wonder. Maybe, perhaps. The unfaithful husband says, Oh, it was just lunch. We just ended up at the same conference. The unfaithful wife says, well, we, we were just texting. Oh, he was just helping with some things around the house while my husband was, uh, was away. It all began with the imagination of what might be, what could be. And then, and then as one boundary of safety was compromised, then another, then another, then another, Paul says, make no provision. Don't make a plan for the deeds of the flesh. And by implication, we have to plan not to participate in the deeds of the flesh. And really, it's true in the realm of any sin. So Paul really highlights sexual immorality here and the drunkenness and the orgies and all of that business. Really very tawdry. But in the realm of any sin... Hurtful words are preceded by bitter and unforgiving thoughts. They've stirred around in you. You've rehearsed them in your mind. And then the hurtful word, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. No, you planned that all along. Careless and hurtful actions against the ones we love are often preceded by selfish attitudes. <laughs> Boy, I was just, I see this in myself. Um, in conversation, because I want to be right. I can be hurtful and rough with my words, especially to the ones I love the most. <laughs> Kathy sees this and graciously points it out. You see, if I start in the conversation with the need to be right, my self-control goes out the window. Our Bible text says, make no provision. Don't give any forethought. Don't imagine these things. Instead, what we do is plan 
We purpose for righteousness. Well, how? See, planning just isn't avoidance. It involves righteous substitutes. The Apostle Paul gives this counsel. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be conformed, be transformed. Now, don't those both sound passive? They do to me. If we're passive in regard to the world, we'll be conformed to it. But I want you to notice something here, that the transformation in us is also passive. Be transformed. He doesn't say transform yourself. He said be transformed. And what is different is that transformation is a result of an act that is active, renewing the mind. So stated another way, behavior is the outworking of what you think about. So we avoid being conformed to the world. We then positively exhibit the character of Christ by renewing our minds. And the result is that we can discern what the will of God is. And we do this on a continuing basis by testing everything we're confronted with by what God's word says. God determines what is good. God determines what is acceptable. God determines what is perfect. So, so how do we know? How do we know what is good, acceptable, and perfect? Well, if, if you read Romans, and I encourage you to do that, if you've never read through it, it's glorious. Previous 11 chapters before this section, I quoted in Romans 12 too. It's the most thorough explanation of the gospel. It is wonderful. But here it is, and I've already touched on this. This is the power of the gospel. Not only does the gospel declare the believer righteous in God's sight, but the gospel, that good news of Jesus, also gives us power over sin in the present. Now, maybe you don't believe me. Maybe this sounds way too simple. Maybe just, what, I just, I just listen to the gospel and it's going to make me righteous? Is that how it works? Well, Yes, we've got to engage our minds. But the way I see it is that we're filling up with Jesus, filling up with the gospel. It, it's, like, uh, it's like you're a vessel and there's some dirt in it and you put it under the, the, the running faucet and you force that water down into it and it just eventually it just gets the dirt out. I call it the concept of displacement. It's all garbage in us. But if you fill up on Jesus, fill up on the gospel, it just starts to wash out the garbage. I know, and we're pretty good at inventing fresh garbage, but, but that gospel still is powerful, right? Let, let me give to you a place where, where this is in the scripture, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Uh, this is one of my favorites. It's, it's a little bit obscure in terms of how the Apostle Paul makes the argument. So I'll just give you kind of the background. Paul's making the argument that, that uh, using the example of Moses, when he went up to the mountain to meet with the Lord and receive the law, and any time he met with the Lord, because he was in the presence of the Lord, he, he would come down and his face was so, so shining and bright, he had to put a veil over his face not to freak out the Israelites. And so using that as a picture, 
talks about beholding glory. So here it is. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He gives us freedom. And now we all, with unveiled face, like Moses was when he went and beheld the glory of the Lord, he put the veil on when he came down, but he was unveiled before the Lord. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, Now, where do we, brothers and sisters, behold the glory of the Lord? Where is it we're going to see the glory of the Lord? It's the gospel. Every time we look to the cross and see what was accomplished there, we see the glory of the Lord. In fact, Jesus, just before he went to the cross, he said, Father, now glorify me. What was he just about to do? He's about to go to the cross. So every time we look at that story, we are beholding the glory of the Lord. That's the gospel. So he says this, back to verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And where does this come from? He says, for this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Think of the simplicity of this. Do you want to grow in Christ-like character? Behold the glory of the Lord. Do you want to bear the image of Christ? Behold his glory. And if you do consistently behold his glory, you will be transformed over time into that very same image, the image of Jesus himself, Step by step by step, from one degree of glory to the next. This has got to be so liberating, isn't it? You can't make yourself holy, but what you can do, just keep, keep staring at Jesus, keep taking in the gospel. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why you hear about Jesus every single Sunday. We want you to behold his glory. That good news is not only what marks us as righteous when we believe, but it changes us in the present and empowers us to be more like Christ now. And every time you and I hear about the glory of what Jesus has accomplished at the cross, every time I'm reminded that he is alive, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, every time I hear this good news, I'm being transformed and so are you. So the the action item here is, behold Jesus. Look to Jesus. Well, the life of a disciple is rather ordinary. It is. I wouldn't expect, for, mo- for the most part, maybe you had a dramatic conversion and all of a sudden, like all your addictions went away and you were just perfectly righteous. But that's really not the journey of most of us, is it? It's kind of a step-by-step-by-step by step by step thing. Rather ordinary. Uh, author Eugene Peterson described it as long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience. So the way to developing Christ-like character is this, putting off sin. It's a constant attitude of repentance toward the Lord. Putting on Christ, 
reaffirming our faith in him, believing in Jesus, believing everything that he has said, and then planning for righteousness by filling up with the gospel. And we do this, brothers and sisters, through, through the ordinary means that God has provided to us. And listen, nothing has changed in, in the realm of discipleship in 2,000 years. The believers in, in the Jerusalem church experienced what we try to commit ourselves to here. Acts 2.42 tells us what the believers did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What, was the, what were the apostles' teaching? They were proclaiming Christ, the gospel. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They were together. Because we need each other, don't we? When I'm with you, it makes the gospel stick. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. We need the ordinances. We need, we need the time around the Lord's table to give us this sort of tangible picture of Jesus, what Jesus' death on the cross accomplished for us. And they devoted themselves to the prayers. There were people that prayed together. It's pretty ordinary. It's pretty ordinary. And hopefully you see this. Having the character of Christ formed in you is not something that we do alone. In fact, all of the marks of Christian discipleship are really interconnected, aren't they? In weeks past, we've talked about identifying with Christ and his church. That's basically saying, I belong. Hello, all of you. I'm with you who are with Jesus. I'm with Jesus, therefore I'm with you. And then we assemble. It says, I, I need to get back to the fellowship. I need to be with them because it makes the gospel stick. And then when I'm with the people of God, I have an opportunity to steward, to use what the Lord has entrusted to me as gifts and abilities and time and treasure to serve And I need you, and you need me to help, and we help each other grow in Christ-like character, and that's our mission. And that's what we want for one another. And that's what we pray for in regard to those around us who don't yet know Christ. Why? Because Jesus commanded it. Well, may God grant us the grace to accomplish what he's called us to do in leading people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the fact that um, character is formed in us, not primarily because of what we do. Certainly we participate by positively engaging, but, but Lord, the, the lion's share of the work of our formation is done because you are gracious you are gracious to form that in us. Lord, may we be people who increasingly reflect the character of Jesus. And we know, we know that the result of that is glory. It's glory to you. So I pray, help each of us to take on the image of Christ and help each of us to help one another 
to take on his image from one degree of glory to another. And we pray this for the glory of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.